there is something in the heart of man that wants to refuse to believe that it is impossible to earn salvation. There is something in the heart of man that wants to hold on to the idea that you can do something to earn or at least contribute to salvation. Maybe pride is at the root. Our hearts are so prideful that we will not accept the fact that there is absolutely nothing we can do to earn a right standing with God. That is why religion is so popular. The basic or underlying premise of religion is that you can do something and you should do something in an attempt to earn salvation. This is not only true of non-Christian religions, this is even true of many churches under the umbrella of Christianity or Christendom. Sadly, it is not only non-Christian religions that teach salvation through certain acts. So do many churches. Salvation is by faith in Christ plus church membership. Salvation is by faith in Christ plus good works. Salvation is by faith in Christ plus baptism. Salvation is by faith in Christ plus the sacraments. Salvation is by faith in Christ plus confirmation. Salvation is by faith in Christ plus obedience to the Old Testament law. And that kind of message actually appeals to the heart of sinful man, which is why there are billions of people involved in religion. People like to believe and want to believe that they can do something to earn or contribute to their salvation. But the gospel message of Scripture is totally contrary to that view. The gospel message of Scripture is that we can do nothing to earn or contribute to our salvation. By way of introduction into our text in Galatians 2, Let's stop off first at Luke chapter 18. So let's look at the third gospel account, the gospel of Luke chapter 18. This is a story I find myself coming back to time and time again because Jesus told this parable to drive home the point that there is nothing we can do to earn salvation. Luke chapter 18. 18 verse 9. Also, Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the story Jesus told, and here's the punchline. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The word justified means to be declared righteous. We are declared righteous by faith because the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ is imputed to our spiritual record. It is placed in our spiritual bank account. This man, when he cried out to God in repentance and humility and faith, was justified. Notice that he didn't do anything to contribute to his salvation. He didn't do anything to contribute to his justification. He didn't go through church membership to make sure he was saved. He didn't get baptized. He wasn't confirmed. He didn't hold forth a bunch of good works like the Pharisee tried to do. He didn't partake of communion. He didn't go to a priest for confession. He didn't do any of that. He simply threw himself on the mercy of God in an act of repentant faith, and Jesus said he was justified. This is one of the greatest illustrations in all the Bible of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that is the doctrine defended by the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Galatians. So let's turn together to Galatians chapter 2 as we continue our trek through this monumental letter written by Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 2. Please follow along as I read verses 15 through 21. Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul writes, We who are Jews by by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If you have been with us for the last several messages of this series, then you know that the first part of this letter is autobiographical. Throughout chapter 1 and on into chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives a sweeping overview of his life and conversion and ministry. His purpose for doing this is to prove that the gospel message he had been proclaiming for approximately two decades at this point, was not a message he invented himself, and it wasn't a message he received from the church leaders in Jerusalem. He didn't even receive it from angels. He received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and it was the same message Jesus had given to James and Peter 
and John and all the other apostles. It was the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now let me pause at this point to address a possible objection. I can just hear someone saying, Brian, you you keep using that phrase about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but that phrase doesn't appear anywhere in the book of Galatians or even in the Bible. That is correct. It doesn't. Neither does the word Trinity occur in the Bible, nor the phrase second coming, nor the phrase virgin birth, but no one who believes the Word of God would deny that those, are, those truths are taught clearly in Scripture. In the same way, the Bible doesn't use the phrase salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that doctrine is taught clearly and explicitly throughout the New Testament. It is taught in Romans 4 and Romans 5, and Romans 10, and Galatians 3, and Ephesians 2, and Philippians 3, and Titus 3, and James 2, and 1 John 5, and Revelation 22, just to mention a few of the key passages. In addition to those passages, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is taught all the way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 15, verse 6, when it says Abraham believed in Yahweh and it was credited to him for righteousness, and that verse is quoted a couple times in the New Testament as proof that the, that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is not just a New Testament doctrine. So even though the phrase salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, doesn't occur in Galatians, the truth is taught, that truth is taught throughout Scripture. And that is the very doctrine that Paul is defending as he writes this letter. Now the background of verses 15 through 21, which is what we want to consider this morning, is Paul's rebuke of Peter in verse 14, which we considered last Lord's Day. You you probably are familiar with or remember the scenario The apostle Peter would eat with the Gentile Christians because he knew that the dietary laws of the Old Testament were no longer an issue. He didn't have to worry about eating something that wasn't kosher because we are now under the new covenant, not the old covenant. But when Jewish people came from James, who was one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church, Peter withdrew from the Gentiles because he was concerned that the Jewish people wouldn't approve of him eating with Gentiles and eating Gentile food. The problem was this. His actions sent a very confusing message. When Peter withdrew and stopped eating with the Gentiles, it it implied that the Old Testament dietary laws were still an issue and something that had to be followed to be accepted by God. In other words, Peter's actions sent the message that salvation isn't by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. His actions implied that you have to keep 
the Old Testament law to be accepted by God. That is why it was such a serious matter. And that is why Paul was compelled to confront Peter, which is what he did on that occasion as recorded in verse 14 here of Galatians 2. So that's the background to our text this morning. In fact, here's an interesting little side note. It's really difficult to know exactly where Paul's words actually end. In other words, did his statement to Peter, and remember he's recording this this event, did his statement to Peter consist only of verse 14? Or is he continuing to quote his own remarks from that event in verse 15 and 16, etc.? It's impossible to know where his recording of what he said back then ends and where he launches from there to teach further. It's impossible to know because the original documents don't have quotation marks in them. So we don't know what was a quote. However, there's a sense in which it doesn't really matter because we don't have to know where Paul's quote ends, that is the quote of what he said to Peter, and where his teaching begins. It means the same thing either way, whether it's what he spoke to Peter or what he is now writing to the Galatians. Peter's actions sent an unclear message about the simplicity of the gospel. So Paul confronted him and then went on to expound on the essential doctrine of salvation by faith alone. He says in verse 15, after telling us what he said to Peter in verse 14, He says, we who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. These two verses go together to strengthen and prove Paul's point That salvation is by grace alone and not by works. He begins in verse 15 by acknowledging that there is a difference between Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish people were chosen by God to be his people, and God revealed his law to them so that they would know how to live and how to avoid sin. The Gentiles didn't have that privilege. They weren't given the law of God, as had been the case with the Jewish people. Therefore, the Gentiles were ignorant of many things that God defined as sin. That's why Paul makes this contrast here in verse 15. He is not implying that Jews aren't sinners, but he is saying that the Jews weren't sinners in the same way as the Gentiles. And the whole reason why he makes this distinction is because he wants to say emphatically that it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. There's only one way to be justified. Jews and Gentiles are different, but both are sinners. And the only way anyone, Jew or Gentile, can be justified is by faith. So he's wanting to clear up this idea, if anyone had it, that, well, the Jews were given the law so they could be justified by keeping the law. Gentiles don't have the law, so they're justified by faith. Jews are justified by obedience to the law. Gentiles by faith. No, he says the only way anyone, Jew or Gentile, can be justified is by faith. So he states that in verse 16. He says in verse 16, "...knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law." 
but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we, and the, the emphasis of the we here is primarily Jewish people. He's saying, even Jews, it's the same for us. We have, been, we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Not only does Paul state in this verse that salvation is only by faith, he states it three times. Or to say it another way, he states three times that no one can be justified by works. This is a good place to pause again to address another possible objection. Some people say, that Paul is not teaching that works are unnecessary for salvation, but that he is only teaching that the works of the Mosaic law are not necessary for salvation. In other words, some people actually believe that the works of the Old Testament law are not necessary for salvation, but good works are necessary for salvation. I've actually heard people say that. They say, It's not necessary to do the works of the Old Testament law to be saved, but it is necessary to do good works to be saved. Stop and think about the logic of that statement. If works were necessary for salvation, then wouldn't it make sense that the works that are necessary are the ones God himself listed in the Hebrew section of Scripture? I mean, are we really going to suggest that other good works have the potential to be more important and efficacious than the works of the law of God in Hebrew Scripture? That is ludicrous. If works were necessary for salvation, and they are not, but if works were necessary for salvation, then the best works you could possibly do would be the ones listed by God himself in Hebrew Scripture. So when Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified, it is also a death blow to the idea that you can be justified by any works whatsoever. And here in verse 16, I want you to notice this, Paul states three times that no one can be justified by works because salvation is by faith alone. Look at this with me. First he says, knowing that a man is not justified by works. That's an individual. A man is not justified by works. His second statement is corporate or collective. He says, we, notice the plural, we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ Jesus. That is corporate or collective. His third statement is universal. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So this is something that is true individually, and it is true collectively, and it is true universally. Justification is by faith alone and not by works. And if we still don't get it, Paul elaborates even further. He says in verse 17, But if we... While we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. This is a complicated verse to understand, especially if you fail to keep in mind the context. Remember now, these words are coming off 
of the confrontation that Paul had with Peter. Peter had been eating with Gentiles because he knew that the dietary laws of the Old Testament were no longer an issue. He knew that. But when other Jewish men showed up, Peter withdrew and he stopped eating with the Gentiles. That sent the message that the Old Testament dietary laws were still in place, they were still in force, and that it is necessary to keep them to be accepted by God and pleasing to Him. With that in mind, we can begin to understand the meaning of this verse. Paul is basically saying this, If salvation is not by faith alone, but is by works, then we are in sin by seeking justification by faith alone. We're going against God. If if salvation is not by faith alone, and we are in sin by not obeying the Old Testament laws. Furthermore, he even takes it a step further. He says this, basically, if salvation is not by faith alone, but it is by the works of the Old Testament law, then Christ is a promoter of sin, because he taught in Mark seven nineteen and other places in the New Testament that the dietary laws are no longer an issue. So he says, listen, if, if, if we need the works of the law to be saved, to be justified, then we are in sin for proclaiming the message that we proclaim salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And even Christ is a minister of sin because he proclaimed that same message. And when Paul mentions the, that possibility of Jesus being a minister of sin, he refutes it with the strongest possible negative in the New Testament. He says, depending on your translation, certainly not. May it never be, or absolutely not, or as the King James, Version, King James Version translates it, God forbid. Christ is no promoter of sin. Christ is no minister of sin because justification is by faith alone. In fact, in verse 18, Paul says, he says this as he continues to add to his teaching, for if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Paul had torn down or destroyed the doctrine of salvation by works through his incessant preaching and teaching of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So here he is saying in this verse that if he turned around and began building the doctrine of salvation by works, after spending so many years tearing it down, he would be transgressing. He would be sinning if he reversed course in that way. And it's possible that the Judaizers were saying this about Paul. Maybe they were telling the Galatians, hey, by the way, Paul has changed his mind since he was here. I know he was here with you previously, but he's changed his mind. And now he is saying, no, you do need works of the Old Testament law to be justified. So Paul says here, listen, if I have reversed course after all this years of teaching salvation by faith alone, then I would be transgressing. I would be sinning by reversing course. If he went back to what he once believed about justification by obeying the law, then he would be putting himself in a position that he should never be in. And that's basically what the Galatians were doing. They were putting themselves back under the law, which they never should have done. When we come to faith in Christ, listen, beloved, the Old Testament law is a non-issue to us. That's what Paul states in the next verse, in verse 19. He says, For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. 
Paul here is stating an axiomatic truth, and he is applying it to us as Christians. He says, when a person dies, the legal system no longer has any jurisdiction over him. In the same way, when we come to faith in Christ, there is a sense in which we enter into his death, and the Old Testament law no longer has any jurisdiction over us. Colossians 3.3 says, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Romans 6.5 says, We have been united together in the likeness of his death. Romans 6.6 says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. When we come to faith in Christ, there is a sense in which we enter into his death and we died. Since we died, the Old Testament law no longer has any jurisdiction over us. That's what Paul means here in this verse when he says he died to the law to live to God. Romans 7, 4 says it this way, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit unto God. You know, whenever you start talking about being dead to the law and the Old Testament law being a non-issue, some Christians panic. And they believe you are encouraging a life of sin and rebellion. But let me ask you a question. Which is a higher motive or incentive for righteous living? Telling Christians that they are under the Old Testament law or telling them that they are married to Christ. Unless you are really skewed in your thinking, it is a much higher motivation to know that you are joined to Christ. So here Paul reminds the Galatians that we are dead to the law. We died to the law that we might be joined to Christ. And how did that come about? Verse 20 says it. One of the most famous verses of the New Testament. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer, uh, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Just in case verse 19 wasn't clear, Paul spells it out in more detail here in verse 20. He reiterates the fact that if we have trusted Christ, there is a sense in which we were crucified with him. We died with him. The old man is dead and gone. We will never be that person again because we are a new creation in Christ. Christ lives in us. And this relationship with Christ is lived by faith, not by the works of the Old Testament law. We are not saved by the law, and we don't live by the law. To say it another way, we are not justified by the Old Testament law, and we are not sanctified by the Old Testament law. We are justified by faith, which is what Paul has been arguing, and we live by faith, which is what Paul says in this verse. This is a very important point to emphasize because there are some Christians, especially those in the Messianic movement, but not only them, But there are some Christians who teach that we are saved by faith, but we live by the Old Testament law. That's very common among Christians. They say we are justified by faith, but we are sanctified by keeping the Old Testament law. Paul's teaching throughout this letter destroys that false dichotomy. 
We are justified by faith and we are sanctified by faith. We are saved by faith and we live by faith. Here in this verse, Paul says that he lived his life by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He didn't say he was saved by faith, but now he was living by the law. He says, no, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul lived his life by faith in the Lord Jesus with the constant remembrance in his mind that Jesus had given his life to bring Paul into that relationship. You see, beloved, the love of Jesus for us is proven by his sacrifice for us. If we ever wonder if Jesus loves us, if we ever doubt that he loves us, all we have to do is look back to the cross. That's the proof. Jesus gave himself for us to pay for our sins so we could know him by faith, and that's how we live life. Please hear this. The Christian life is not a life of rules and regulations. It is a relationship. It is a life that we live by faith in Christ himself. Now, I'm not saying that there are no commands in the New Testament. You know there are. Or that there are no imperatives in the New Testament. There are. But everything we do and don't do is because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We should never forget that. The Christian life is not a list. It's a relationship. We come into this relationship by grace through faith, and we continue that relationship by grace through faith. And the person who thinks that this kind of teaching is a license for sin doesn't understand the grace of God. This kind of teaching doesn't cheapen the grace of God. It actually affirms the grace of God. So Paul says in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God. That's the accusation that was made against him. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. The first phrase in this verse is the common accusation that you often hear when you teach that we are not under the Old Testament law. It's what you hear. I've heard it, I've heard it for 35 years. Some people will say, some Christians will even say, when you teach that we aren't under the law, you are nullifying or setting aside the grace of God by giving Christians a license to sin. Beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. When you teach people that justification is not by the law and sanctification is not by the Old Testament law, you are not encouraging sin. You are actually accentuating or emphasizing the grace of God. In fact, if you teach people that salvation is by keeping the Old Testament law, then you, please hear this, you are throwing grace aside by saying, in essence, Christ didn't need to die. The last phrase in this verse tells us that if righteousness comes through the law, if you can earn it, then Christ died needlessly. He died for nothing. Why did he die if salvation can be earned by keeping the Old Testament law? 
If the path to positional and practical righteousness is by keeping the Old Testament law, then Jesus did not need to pay for our sins. We could have taken care of it ourselves. Of course, that's a ludicrous and blasphemous assertion. We can do nothing to remedy our sin problem. We can do nothing to remedy our condemned standing before God. But the heart of sinful man doesn't want to believe that and accept that. As I said in the introduction, there is something in the heart of man that wants to hold on to the idea that you can do something to earn or at least contribute to salvation. But that belief is destroyed by an understanding of the gospel as it is presented here and throughout the New Testament. Let me show you one other example as we begin to wind down in Romans chapter 3. So turn from Galatians to what many people call the cousin of Galatians, Romans, or maybe they are brothers or sisters because they are so closely joined. Romans chapter 3. Beginning in verse 21 of this third chapter, Paul presents the marvelous doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For 64 verses leading up to this section, Paul has been presenting some horrible news. Terrible news. He has demonstrated that all of mankind is totally depraved which means we are dead in sin and we are unable to help ourselves. Just in case there is any doubt, Paul strings together a series of quotes from Hebrew Scripture in chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, and that forms the conclusion to his airtight case against the human race. What you basically have here is a courtroom scene. Paul is the prosecuting attorney and all of us are on trial. And he proves systematically that we are all condemned, we are all depraved, and sort of his closing argument, you know how how attorneys will have a a closing argument, his closing argument is chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, where where he just gives a series of quotes from Hebrew Scripture to prove beyond any shadow of a doubt our sinfulness. So Paul has proven that. There's no doubt about it. And he knew that some people then would, would get that and understand it and would be quick to try to find a solution. Well, what's the solution? And in doing so, they would turn to the Old Testament law. They'd say, okay, we've got to find a solution. Well, the solution is obey the Old Testament law and earn your salvation. So Paul anticipates that with verses 19 and 20. He says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped, And all the world may be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So Paul says, listen, the purpose of the law is not, and never has been, to provide a means by which a person can achieve a right standing before God. The purpose of the law is, and always has been, to convince us of our guilt, so that we shut our mouths before God instead of trying to defend ourselves or excuse ourselves. We are guilty before God whether we feel guilty or not. 
The term that Paul uses here in verse 19 is a legal term. He's not talking about how we feel. Oh, we feel so guilty. Some people feel guilty, and they don't need to feel guilty if they're, they're justified by Christ. Other people don't feel guilty. They need to feel guilty because their sin is still on their account. But that is, that is irrelevant to what Paul is saying here. He's not talking about feelings of guilt or lack of feelings of guilt. He is talking about an actual condition. We are guilty. We are guilty. He has demonstrated without question that every human being is guilty before God. So naturally, that begs the question, then how can we be right with God? If this is our condition, if this is our case, how can we be right with God? And just in case someone says, oh, the way to be right with God is to obey the Old Testament law, Paul pens verse 20, where he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The purpose of the law is not to save. The purpose of the law is to show us that we aren't saved. The purpose of the law is to show us our sinfulness so we'll look for the solution, which is not our righteousness, but God's righteousness. And so Paul adds verse 21. He says, But now, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Those first two words in this verse may be the strongest contrast in all the Bible. I mean, think about it. For 64 verses, Paul has been demonstrating the guilt and unrighteousness of man. And coming off 64 verses, he says, But now, but now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. He is saying it is possible for man to be righteous before God, but it's not earned by works. God's righteousness is not obtained by trying to keep the law, but this righteousness is certainly witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, faith righteousness is not only apart from the law, it is also supported by the teaching of the law. God's way of faith righteousness is witnessed by the law and the prophets. After all, the very first verse in the Bible about faith righteousness occurs in Genesis. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed Yahweh and it was credited to him for righteousness. So God's way of faith righteousness is witnessed by the law and the prophets because it is his righteousness. Therefore, it can't be earned. So how do we obtain it? Verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, here it is, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. This righteousness is not obtained by behaving. It is obtained by believing. Paul says it two times in this verse. He says the righteousness of God through faith to all who, notice how he emphasizes it, he says it a second time, the righteousness of God through faith to all and on all who believe. This righteousness is not obtained by behaving, it is obtained by believing. The only way we can ever be right before God is by faith in Jesus Christ. And according to this verse, this righteousness is available to all 
who believe. This isn't just for the elite. This isn't just for the Jew. This is for all. The righteousness that God gives through faith in Jesus Christ is available to all. Listen, no one is good enough to be saved and no one is too evil to be saved. There's no distinction, Paul says. No difference. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if you've tried your whole life to be a good person, you're not good enough to be saved. It doesn't matter if you've been a horrible person, you're not too evil to be saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So I ask you this morning, are you saved? In what are you trusting for your salvation? Anything in yourself? Then you're lost. In Christ, in Christ alone? Then you're saved. Are you saved? Let's bow together in closing. And obviously that is not a question to take lightly or to, dis- to dismiss without serious contemplation and consideration. Are you saved? Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for salvation? If you're trusting in anything else, even something good, even good things, if you're trusting in anything else, let go of it and trust in Christ and Christ alone. Father, your plan of salvation is a marvel, and it runs so cross-grain to the way our human hearts naturally think because we think that we can and should try to earn our salvation in some way. By being the best kind of person we can be, by going to church, or by obeying the Old Testament law, or the list is, who knows how long it is, because there are so many things that we as humans put on that list. And yet all of that is completely contrary to what you so clearly say in your word, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Father, thank you that there is no distinction. There is no difference. No one is good enough to be saved and no one is too evil to be saved because it comes down to simple, childlike, humble, repentant faith in Jesus Christ. May your spirit work in each and every one of our hearts, every one of us hearing these words, to make sure, to cause us to make sure we are trusting in Christ and Christ alone, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.